Uh, welcome everyone. Uh, this is the 35th year that we're having uh, the MARG conference. Um, I, uh, I joined the LSE over 20 years ago, so it was, it was just over uh, uh, sort of halfway that I've seen the MARG conferences. Uh, I'm told that they used to be fairly small, uh, and they've grown and grown and grown, and, and invariably we end up with 100 people plus each year. Um, so you'll probably know me if you've uh, attended over the past 20 years. My name's Albi Marni. Uh, Michael Bromwich usually does the opening session, uh, and he probably sort of uh, uses a lot more humor than, than I, I could manage to... Uh, uh, he's uh, he's uh, gone home for a while for a, for a quick break uh, because he knows this afternoon is going to be sort of fairly dynamic. Um, <clears throat> so he'll he'll be back after lunch. Uh, now, as I say, it's a 35th year, um, and each year what we tend to do is to sit down about seven eight months before the conference and and we decide on what a good theme might be. Um, we've done strategic management accounting and we've done sort of alliances and we've done networked organisations and so on, uh, and uh, somebody came up with the idea of, well, why don't we combine two things that we've seen in the past uh, in, in this sort of modern, globalizing, sort of interactive world. Um, uh, so that was one of the, one of the sort of background uh, elements to the title, uh, strategic uh, sort of partnerships. Uh, the other thing is that there's a fair bit of research that's uh, been undertaken recently in management accounting in the area, uh, but likewise that research seems to have a greater interface between practitioners and researchers. Uh, so uh, if you've seen the program, we've got a, a variety of talks, uh, uh, and we've got basically a practitioner sort of angle and an academic angle to today's talks. Uh, most come in uh, into a discussion of strategic partnerships from a variety of different perspectives. Um, so um, uh, this, is, this is what we've got in store for you. You've, uh, you've seen the, the uh, uh, outline in terms of uh, a lot of breaks that we try and build in. We also have a panel session where we try and sort of get more engagement uh, from the audience. Um, I think traditionally the, the, uh, one of the, the payoffs of the, the conference is that a lot of people sort of talk during the conference and then they talk after the conference and they create their own partnerships and alliances and then before you know it, something new comes about, and sometimes being presented here. Uh, I think that's the idea, that, that you do sort of go and, and mingle. Uh, you shake hands with people that uh, you don't know, you haven't seen before. Uh, there are a number of uh, uh, new participants this year, so, so welcome to all of you. And then there are the, the sort of old-timers who've, who've been here sort of for perhaps uh, up to the 35 years, so uh, welcome to you all. Um, now, I just wanted to, to say a, a word about uh, next year, which uh, Michael asked me to, to just highlight. And this is that we've gone through 35 years, and, and we're obviously sort of looking forward to the next 35 years. Uh, next year's conference will, will be a two-day conference with a one-day uh, research element to that conference. Uh, now, what, we, what, uh, what was started off with these conferences is to have as great uh, an inter interfacing between practice and, and research as we possibly could. So uh, our theme for next year is, is in fact, uh, looking at uh, uh, the interplay between research and practice. Uh, so we, we'll sort of put a, a call out and we'll, we'll basically be circulating some information about that, uh, but essentially uh, next year you might want to be ready for a two-day conference as opposed to a one-day conference. <laughs> Uh, now, um, uh, we've got a, a lunch break coming up where we, you, it'll be kind of, uh, um, you know, various things that you do when you stand up and you want to eat. And one of those things is obviously to uh, talk and create your, your own uh, alliances and partnerships. 
But uh, before that, we have uh, uh, two uh, sets of speakers. We have uh, David Otley and Chris Ford, who, who are kicking off this morning uh, momentarily. Uh, David Otley has, uh, he'll probably confirm, but he may have been here at most of the 35 conferences that we had prior to this. Uh, Chris, uh, however, is, is uh, maybe to a degree new to the game. He's a PhD student who's uh, joined Lancaster. Uh, but I'm told that uh, he was an entrepreneur and uh, he knows how to cycle and keep his balance. Uh, so I'm sure David Otley will do his best to destabilize him. <laughs> now, uh, their talk is, uh, um, uh, it, it was one that, that I had to think through a little bit. Uh, princes, property developers, commanders, and charities, uh, lessons from an unusual strategic alliance. Uh, so uh, without further ado, David and Chris. Fine, thank you. My technical competence clearly is uh, below average for academics these days. Good morning, and uh, thank you to the organisers for inviting us to present this paper. I mean, the story of this paper begins from an interest that Chris and I shared in strategic partnerships, particularly in relation to innovation and what has been described these days as open innovation. That's where groups of people from different organizations collaborate. And how do you organize and control collaborations when the parameters of the collaboration and the likely outcomes of that collaboration aren't in fact known? The whole point of the collaboration is to come up with something new. And often that is surprising when it happens. So how, how do we control those sort of things? And there is a bit of a research gap, I think. There's not a lot of extant research on that topic, particularly not empirically derived research. And the opportunity came up for a rather interesting case study that when I first saw it, I wasn't sure it was anything to do with open innovation at all, but it was a collaboration of some interesting stakeholders doing something that none of them had ever done before. So perhaps there, there was an element of innovation in it. It's an unusual organisation in that it is temporary. It's, uh, it was set up to do a fundraising event for two charities, uh, the two charities are very different. Um, and it was therefore an organization that would only last for about a nine-month period. The fundraising event would take place and the organization would dissolve, the collaborative organization. So from a research point of view, actually that was quite interesting because it's a defined time span. And because the organization, the collaboration, was completely new, there's no history to go on things that might be hidden away in an ongoing collaboration would be much more obvious and much more visible, we thought, in a new and temporary organization. And we hoped that, therefore, there would be some insights into the process of collaboration and innovation in perhaps more normal collaborations in, in, in the in innovation area. And at the end of the presentation, Chris will be telling us a little bit about 
some of the extensions into what we're really interested in, um, which are more scientific-based collaborations. But what is the theory? I mean, I guess um, Bob Simons is one of the key sources, because the key research question that Bob looked at during the, the 1990s, I guess, was can you have innovation and control? And these were seen at the time as being, I think, somewhat incompatible. You could either have tight control, but that would kill innovation, or you could have innovation, but control of it was really for the birds and you just let the thing run. And I think the, the upshot of Simon's work was that is not correct. Certainly he has produced quite a number of case study examples of organisations that have very elaborate and quite tight controls, and the Johnson & Johnson Company is one very well-known one, but also managed to be innovative as well. And he gives some insights into how both those things are, are manage, managed to be combined. But the focus of Simon's work is very much on new product development and processes that are internal to a single organisation. And, and we're trying to extend that a little bit. And then there's innovation itself. What, what is innovation? And it turns out, I think, that innovation covers a multitude of different things. We can have process innovation, we can have product innovation, we can have innovation within a single organisation, we can have innovation that occurs uh, along a value chain, or we can have innovation that occurs in a system of organisations who collaborate to some extent on some things. So we're, we're talking about uh, quite, quite a lot of, of different things. And the other little bit of theory that we found early on was a 2010 paper by Jorgsen and Messner that was applied particularly to new product development, but we see possibilities of extending it into um, the, the, the wider area. And they had a few recommendations, essentially, that essentially said, don't get blinded by the detail. It's not actually the detail that's crucially important. It's the overall set of controls. And one organization may control an activity in one way, and another organization may control the same sort of activity in a completely different way, but still come up with much the same result. So we've got that issue. And they talk about looking at the blend of accounting and strategy. And rather interestingly, they use the word talk. They talk about strategy talk and accounting talk. And so blending those two things, but in a discursive manner, rather than at the detail of making sure the strategy integrates with the accounting control system or whatever. And the way in which accountability is exercised. And so what we're going to concentrate on today is very much on accountability. And if there's a research question, it's how, how do systems of accountability get created? And a new organization is a great site for looking at this. And how do they get managed to enable something to happen with multi-stakeholders from different organizations yet actually achieve something? that they set out to achieve. And we stumbled across this case. And this was right at the beginning of uh, Chris's PhD. 
And I thought, well, you know, is this really what we wanted to look at? It's not the sort of collaboration we talked about initially, but it looked really interesting. Uh, we had, Chris had excellent access and collaboration from one of the organizations involved, which extended into the others. And it seemed to be a opportunity to do something a little bit different. And so what we are going to do is look at an unusual case. It's seen as a pilot study for Chris's PhD. And in these days of research training courses, it's bucking the trend a little bit. I decided that the best way to learn how to do research was actually to do it. And so we, we took off into this with very little background. So it's almost theory free going in, or what was in our heads. So here we go. Clip on your carabiners, and we will let Chris let us down over the precipice and descend the shard. Oh, my word. <laughs> Thanks, David. Um, yes, so. The Shard, for those of you that don't know it, is the, uh, I think, the highest skyscraper in Western Europe. I was quite pleased that I could actually see it as I walked down the street on the way here. And um, there it is. And this chap, um, for those of you that don't know him, is Prince Andrew, His Royal Highness, the Duke of York. And he is the chairman of the Board of Trustees of the Outward Bound Trust. And one day, while chairing a meeting, when they were discussing having some kind of team-building event to get the trustees working better together, but also a fundraising event, he said, why don't we abseil down the Shard? Um, much to the surprise of everyone else in the room. And um, they said, well, yeah, sounds like a great idea. No one's done it before. Um, and it actually would be the highest civilian abseil attempted anywhere in the world. So, yeah, if you're going to do an event, great. So... About nine months later, a group of expert mountaineers, accompanied by the Royal Marines, were at the top of the Shard at about 4am, setting up ropes and specialist equipment that they designed specifically for the purpose. And um, by 7am, people were descending. And during the course of the day, about 40, no, I think precisely 40 people descended the Shard and raised two and a half million pounds for the two charities and had a very successful and enjoyable day in the process and got, got a lot of media coverage for the organisations. But of course, to make this work, actually quite a lot of people had to come together. And not necessarily people you would naturally work together or who you would think have very common interests. So at the heart of the story, we have the Outward Bound Trust a really interesting charity that's been around for about 60 years and does a lot of work getting young people out of urban environments into the country to do sort of outdoor development training courses, build their leadership and communication skills. So for them, this was about fundraising and a really important aspect of their fundraising for their centres. Then you've got His Royal Highness, who is chairman of the Outward Bound Trust, but it's a charity he has a great affinity for. It's actually the first charity that was handed to him to 
take an involvement in by his father when he came out of the Royal Navy himself. Then you have Buckingham Palace, whose structures and organisational processes actually influence the way the Duke works and influence what happens there. But the Duke decided that it would be a great idea, and he decided this unilaterally, and the Outward Bound Trust trustees and others found this out after he'd made the decision, that it would also be great if the Royal Marines Charitable Trust benefited. Um, But at the same time, he didn't just want the charities to both benefit, he thought it would be great if actually operationally they also collaborated. So you have the Outward Bound Trust Mountaineers having to work for the first time with Royal Marines Commandos. But to add another dimension to the whole process of fundraising, the Royal Marines Charitable Trust doesn't actually have any real structure. It's, it's one guy. So they contract out their fundraising activities to a private company that runs on a 20% commission base under the name of Commando Spirit. So all fundraising would be organised through them. And then, of course, you need access to the building, which means you need to somehow negotiate with this chap, Irvin Seller, of Seller Property Group. But when Irvin Seller needed finance to complete the building, the Duke helped in discussions with the Qataris and the Qatari royal family and the Qatari Investment Authority, which is the world's largest sovereign wealth fund, and they actually own 80% of the building. So anything that's going to happen on this building, they also need to have some say in it. Aside from all of these organisations, we've also got other things that are quite influential. Another key player is Buckingham Palace itself, the building, the place. Because, of course, if you have meetings in Buckingham Palace to discuss a collaboration, the place has an influence. What, what you say and do in Buckingham Palace is quite different from what you say and do by email or in your own office. And then, of course, there's the actual building itself. Again, It sharpens your mind in many different ways when you look at that picture, whether you're the guy reversing off, whether you're the guy responsible for him holding the rope, whether you're the guy who owns the building hoping to fill it with tenants at some stage and therefore not wanting the first thing that the press talk about about your building to be the disaster that happened during a fundraising event. So a lot of interesting people involved And for us, the interest was looking at this as a collaboration. We didn't want to focus just on the Outward Bound Trust and say, how did they benefit? But actually, to talk to all the parties and try to really understand um, when you've got no contracts. Because they they, they couldn't find ways to create contracts, and some people didn't want to create contracts. The gift of using the building was never then going to become a contractual thing. And there was no real hierarchy. Although the Duke brought people together, he didn't have the authority to actually make people work together. So how, over nine months, do you get all this disparate group of people, no contracts, no hierarchy, to actually come together and work together? So, as David said, we were asking lots of questions and trying to follow this while I was briskly reading literature in the evenings to try and find some clues as to what seemed to be going on. And one of the themes that seemed to emerge was this idea that you know, we need to look beyond the accounting systems because actually not a lot of accounting was going on, but a lot of control was going on. So how do we peer into these places where accounting doesn't happen, these control systems that have some broader way of working? Um, and if we're going to look at those systems, how can we find a way to 
kind of get into them and understand what's happening. Um, and this is where this idea from Barry about saying, well, you know, if you're going to look at a system, at least try and break it down into the nodes and the linkages and, and see what you can make sense of there. So how are we going to understand a, a, a system of accountability? Well, of course... You know, as I was practicing to be an academic, I knew that a slide of definitions was important, and why have one when you can have a bag full? So, you know, we looked for a few definitions of accountability, and I think realise this is quite a rich concept, from the very straightforward idea of, you know, giving an account to someone for something you're responsible for, to the fact that it actually has effects. It, you know, it constructs relationships and it shapes people's identities and it changes things over time. Um, so. Getting into this, you know, but with a clear focus that we want to understand actually what makes this thing work. What are the accountabilities that are being created and recreated that keep these people together? So what we were seeing were a lot of different versions of accountability going on. The ones that most people are familiar with, hierarchical, you account to your boss for whatever it is you're supposed to be doing, and social with your peers. But then... A number of other themes came out from our look through literature that really take in ideas of accountability that is very much externalised, but also various internalised, whether it is a personal sense of what you're accountable for in the organisation, the things you really feel have to happen that weigh on your shoulders, but then also um, this idea of higher principles, you know, things that come out of, for example, the caring professions, or interesting here about fundraising for charities, this idea that you feel accountable with your role in wider society to these other causes. So when we look for these different control systems, if we're going to look at a system of accountability, look beyond accounting, we've got to start thinking, well, how do we match up these different controls, these different accountabilities, and make them fit together? And, of course, there is still that strong disciplinary force from the external funder, um, which, in this case, you could say possibly one of the most powerful forces is the Qatari Investment Authority, because, in the end, they own 80% of the building that critically is required. So, as well as thinking about how accountability is experienced at each of these nodes, we want to say, well, how is it actually enacted? How do, how do people enact accountability? If they're not talking about financial figures... What are the other things? And we can say, well, you know, as, the, uh, as this paper talks about, the Jorgensen and Messner paper, is it operational? Is it financial? And then how do we actually give these accounts? Are people happy with a report being sent? Or is it a case of you know, seeing the whites of your eyes as you present your ideas of what you're going to do um, in front of you know, a group of people? Um, and then where are they taking place? How frequently? So these were the ideas we were wrestling with as we went through this, this study. But of course, one of the big things is we're not just looking to understand one system. Because you could say, well, when we take those previous two slides, you could sort of normalise ways of giving and receiving accounts in each organisation. You get used to how you give accounts to your boss, what time of you know, the month or the year certain things happen and who they happen with. But for a collaboration, these systems have to somehow bump together. But in reality, organisations don't come together. People come together. And when the people come together, they have to somehow create an understanding of what they're going to do. They offer, they accept, they negotiate. 
And then whatever they've accepted responsibility for, they have to take that away and embed that into the accountability system of their own organisation. So the question is, how successfully do they do that to keep this thing working? So, skipping to the end, of course, we can see it was a great success. But what we were really interested in is the bumps in the road. What happened to stress the system? Because if we want to understand how this soft system of accountabilities held everything together with no contracts, we need to look at some of the times when it was really put under pressure and then how it was managed. So we, we've pulled out for you today, there's some other things in the paper that we're working on, but two really interesting critical incidents that really tested the way accountability worked and was managed. So for this one, we have a short video, um, and I'd like you to imagine, if you will, that you are either... Irvin Sellers, head of public relations, or a Qatari owner of a building, when this video appears and is in all of the press. And it's about a one and a half minute video that appeared in the April, and the abseil was due to take place in September. So this was in April when they'd been negotiating for two or three months. So that caused a certain amount of excitement on the emails the following morning, as you might imagine. And of course, there was a natural response from Seller Property Group, which was postpone, postpone, postpone. Um, very concerned about the press, about investor relations, about everything, basically, quite naturally so. But of course, the CEO of the charity of the Outward Bound Trust needed to keep the project on track. It needed to keep this project moving forward. So what he did, and he shared a lot of this with us, um, and, and this is where we were very interested in the accountability perspective. He couldn't, he had nothing to enforce, there was no contract. So how did he somehow create a greater sense of accountability towards the project? Well, first of all, he changed his mode of accounting. He went from general talk about how good it is for the charity to real detailed quantification, so specifically how much money has been raised, but also who has raised the money. So starting to align the interests of the different parties, the Duke has raised this money, and also the fact that the Outward Bound Trust was going to be running training courses for the young children from the schools in Southwark, which, of course, is where the Shard is built. So aligning the interests, the social interests of the building and the building's owners with the community around it. He also wanted to ensure that whatever meetings were set up at the palace still went ahead because it's a lot easier to cancel something by email or to postpone by email than it is when you're sitting in the palace, which is the space where this was negotiated in the first place. And again, it comes back to this idea of the power of the place. Um, and face-to-face -face say, actually, we don't think this will work. But also, he changed the structure of the postponement quite significantly by talking about the fact that, actually, if we delay, really, we're not delaying, we're cancelling. So if we delay, you're actually going to be accountable for a cancellation of the whole event because it will be winter. We can't do it in the winter because of the weather. Then it will be spring, and the building will be occupied. And if you've spent £2 million for a penthouse suite, 
in the top of the shard. You don't want some people's boots coming down the outside of it when you get out of the shower in the morning. So that was one really interesting incident early on. A second one that came later on in the process um, was what we call, and it's not in your pack, but we decided we should put it in because David insisted it was quite an interesting one. Um, This one we call the Mossad Man incident because on the Thursday before the abseil, which was on a Monday, the chief mountaineer was summoned by Irving Seller to his office. And Irving Seller, quite naturally, was slightly anxious about what was happening and um, wanted to ensure... Essentially, what he wanted was some sense of hierarchy um, and he wanted some increased visibility because up until now, this mountaineer had been working for this collaborative group and Irving Seller and Seller Property Group and their ways of working were not really central to this. But actually, someone was about to do something rather dangerous on his building. So he wanted, first of all, to have some hierarchy, second of all, to have some sense of visibility so he could have some real in-the-moment control of what was going on. And how he achieved this was by introducing to the mountaineer his head of security. And in my conversation with the mountaineer afterwards, he said, well, basically, this guy was introduced to me as a former Mossad agent and a former head of security at El Al Airlines. And this man will be with you from now, Thursday evening, through to the completion of the event on Monday evening, and he will be in constant communication with me. And if he is unhappy at any stage in the proceedings, he will cancel the event. He will phone me and it will be finished. And if you want to think about the level of scrutiny that went on here in terms of suddenly becoming visibly accountable to someone, this guy had his bag packed, and he actually accompanied the mountaineer back to his hotel and for the next four days had breakfast, lunch and supper with the mountaineering team and were on their shoulder for the whole way through the event. So, of course, you can understand from the property developer's side of things he needed some control, and at this stage it was time to enforce that. From the mountaineer side of things, there's a point where you say, well, how flexible can I be in the way I run my operation? Unfortunately, he was flexible enough. So, we had an interesting story. We had to try and pull out some things to help us understand, actually, what made this work. And we sort of boiled it down to really three things. Convening, how do you get the right people in the room? And then constructing, how do you actually build some kind of system of accountability that's going to hold these people together? And then managing, how do you actually, in an ongoing way, through time, with all these stresses and strains, manage this system so that people stay together through to the completion of the project? Now, convening here looks relatively straightforward. The Duke asks some people to come for tea, has a chat... And, um, and there we go. But of course, every time a skyscraper is built, every charity under the sun wants to climb up it, jump off it, abseil down it. Um, th- this is the way of tall buildings. Um, and probably over 100 organisations had already approached Seller Property Group to ask if they could do something on the shard. So of course, the critical thing here, from a convening point of view, was this personal accountability, this personal relationship between Irving Seller and the Duke who had helped with this refinancing but also you rely very much on these unfulfilled higher principles of people, if people want to do something good in society and yet they haven't yet had the chance somehow to achieve that, 
you're almost giving them the, not, the opportunity to be involved. And this happened, for example, with the PR organisation, Bell Pottinger, were invited to become part of this. An enormous amount of work that they did, but essentially it was a head partner invited and said, we really need PR, would you like to help? These are the people you're going to be helping. And they said, yeah, absolutely, brilliant. Um, it doesn't have to be strong enough, this convening power, to actually hold the whole thing together, but you need to get those people into the room so you can have that first accountable moment, that face-to-face moment. And then, of course, the construction process. How do you make a system that is strong enough, resilient enough, to keep everybody together? And what we saw that was really interesting was that it really was a very iterative thing. People come together and you gradually start to create almost a sense of um, almost this clan-like control going on in that cohesive group, that descent of the shard group as it is there. But those little red dots, whatever they've agreed to, they obviously have to go away and implement somehow. And we could see that different organisations had different challenges with this. If you were lucky, an email would come back a day or two later saying, actually, you know that thing, that's not going to work. We, you know, we'll have to change it. Sometimes it took longer. Um, and one example was um, the Royal Marines were going to do all of the training. And this was all in the press releases. It's going to be the Royal Marines deliver the training for everyone to do the shard. Now, for various operational reasons... It was actually challenging for them to do this. No one got to the bottom of exactly what the problems were, but what actually happened was on the day of the first training course, when the mountaineering experts were due to train the marines in the special system, 11 were expected, 3 arrived. Now, we understand there are many other operational priorities, but the fact was that this this challenge of getting an initial agreement to penetrate right through a large complex organisation to the point where activity has to take place can be quite significant. And then, of course, the whole system has to go back into another iterative process of who's going to do this then, who's going to pick this up. And, of course, there are competing existing accountabilities that people have to take account of. So the next stage is, of course, managing. Managing this in an ongoing way. How do we keep this thing on the road when we have critical incidents of that nature and yes we want a system that is basically effective and it's resilient, resilient to these different tensions and the flexibility, this idea of people being able to gift extra services when suddenly gaps appear in the system is very important um, as is trying to get some alignment but the thing that we found most interesting was actually this idea of positioning and we borrowed borrowed this from uh, Reese and Trout who are two of the very well-known marketing authors and what they say is you know, positioning is not about what you do to the product it's about how you position the product in the mind of the person who's purchasing it so we're not changing the product and what we saw here was positioning of accountabilities. Essentially what you want is people to be responsible for doing exactly the same thing. We want Seller Property Group to be responsible for letting us use the building. Irving Seller wants the mountaineer, as everyone else does, to be responsible for running a safe abseil. The responsibilities don't change. But what we do is we restate the accountabilities 
to align them, to strengthen them, restating the mode? Is it now financial rather than just a sort of a general, you know, doing a good thing for a charity? And through this restatement, this linking to personal and other social accountabilities and higher principles, that's how we strengthen the system, not necessarily by changing the responsibilities. But of course, sometimes, you know, for example, with the mountaineer having to actually incorporate another member into his team, there is a real sense of adaptation that has to go on. And this is where this idea of you know, the gifts and the gaps, when gaps emerge, do you A, have the capabilities to fill those gaps, and B, is some party to this collaboration willing to step in and fill those gaps? And of course, the final part of this managing is this idea of reconvening. Because one thing we see with self-regulating accountability is this idea, you know, we're all autonomous human beings, but we know that at some stage we have to give an account. So we regulate ourselves in between the moments of accounting. So then the question is, how frequently do we need to reconvene these groups? If we have no contracts, how often do we need to actually make sure everyone sits down, sees the whites of the eyes of the others, to say yes or no, we can or can't do this? And then choosing the right space to do that in. Incredibly powerful. So these are some of the insights coming out of the case. We're working on turning this into something of a paper, but what we wanted to do was then say, well, how's this going to help us? when we start looking at some of the other, as David said, the proper things that we're working on. Um, and there were really three studies that we're undertaking. And one is looking, well, one is really this pair, looking at how these two organisations, Oxford Mann Institute and the Stevenage Bioscience Catalyst, how they manage their strategic alliances, which are essentially built around the idea of increasing collaborations. So we're kind of taking this up another level of analysis, and we're not just now looking at one collaboration, which we've started with to get some ideas, but saying, well, if your alliance has the intention of fostering innovation, fostering collaboration, what can we see emerging from what we've just worked on? And... I just want to draw out a couple of ideas because this is really sort of work in progress for us. But the Oxford Mann Institute. So Mann Group is a very large quantitative hedge fund um, and their competitive advantage comes primarily from research and development. They need very sophisticated models to predict and beat the market effectively and, and very complex systems to manage them. Um, so what they need, most importantly, is early access to very smart quantitative finance research. Um, but this comes from across many disciplines. You've got machine learning from engineering, you've got computer scientists, you've got astrophysicists who are used to dealing with very messy, fuzzy data. How do you get them together and how do you get to see their early ideas so you can both take an interest in the ideas but also the smart people that are creating them? Now, academics generally don't like accounting for what they do at an early stage to industry but they do like accounting to other academics they like to come and give presentations of their new ideas um, in front of an audience that will help them to further shape those ideas so the convening ability of Oxford University was absolutely crucial for the investment by Mann Group into the development of the Oxford Mann Institute 
And in particular, they then embedded in the Oxford Man Institute very much an Oxford way of working. It is an institute within the university. So the protections around intellectual property of academics, even though you've got a floor of people from Man Group who are attending seminars, you know, the protection of the academics was, was really essential here. But with some slight variations in the way seminars are run to foster greater collaboration. So that strategic alliance really is built on the convening power of that institution and how they can harness it. Then the other place that we're working with at the moment is the Stevenage Bioscience Catalyst. Now this is joint funded by GlaxoSmithKline, by the Wellcome Trust and by uh, UK government. And at first sight it's a very nice incubator for startup biotechs. But the whole premise of the investment was actually not to just build an incubator, but was to somehow develop a better ecosystem of bioscience innovation in the UK. And that's quite a big, messy idea to try and build some measurements around. How do you succeed in doing that? Um, and what we saw was as they constructed their, and they're still in the process of constructing, this has only been going for a, a couple of years, um, constructed air controls and really focused very much more on social and spatial controls rather than any kind of hierarchical structures or real formal accounting. Um, you're more likely to hear people talking about when they're recruiting tenants for this place, not you know, how much are they going to pay, how long are they going to be in for, but actually do they get it? Do they understand what we're trying to do? Are they going to be collaborating with other people? And then the spatial construction, when we talk about constructing a control system, here they genuinely did think about how they physically constructed the control system. So the incubator building is as close, I think the, the joke was we put it as close to the GSK building as possible without it actually falling into the pond in between. Um, the car park is put way to the side. They share the cafeteria with the GSK building. All of the labs are inward facing into a big atrium. Everything is designed to increase the flow of people and increase its convening power. They've brought in specific individuals to help. You know, so they have an entrepreneur in residence who helps people to make connections. The things they measure, they have a very light touch on financial metrics because they're very much aware that these could actually drive the performance of the incubator in the short term, filling up with tenants, but not drive the whole ecosystem and the collaborations. So these were some of the challenges they were working with. Now, we're really in the heart of this process at the moment. Um, this is my final slide. We've got more questions than answers, but we think we've got some ideas to go through. We would very much welcome your questions or comments now. Um, and so thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, Richard McVeigh from LSE. Uh, I'm not a management accountant, so this is a financial accounting legalistic type question. Uh, I'll do my best. Well, two questions. One, no contracts. Mm. But I mean, this is a, what's called elephant safety nightmare, isn't it? So there must have been insurance involved, and the insurers yes. need to know who's responsible for what if they're going to insure it. So that's the contract question. The other would be, I mean, very, very interesting what you've done. Uh, what it reminds me of, though, is the problem 
when we teach financial accounting of saying it was all very easy in the Middle Ages when you had a venture which set out and came back and you knew at the end whether it had been profitable or not. But when you're dealing with an ongoing business, mm. you've got a different set of problems, which is how do you measure performance to date when a lot of that is going to depend on what people tell you what is going to happen in the future. So that managing these kind of relationships in an ongoing situation, mm. not to deny anything you've done, is presumably a level of complexity higher. Yes. Well, I think... Taking those in reverse order then, yes, you're right. I mean, the, the whole idea of following this, as David sort of said at the outset, was it was a nice defined time space that would allow us to develop some ideas that we can then transplant into other areas. And, of course, there are very few things that take a longer time than the development of new medicines. So, actually, taking some of these ideas into bioscience for us was you know, quite an exciting Prospect, because in a sense, and, and it was interesting talking to some of the people there about their control systems. When you're looking at collaborations, you almost get the feeling that there's a sense that people are always trying to they have to hold their nerve because it's very hard to get metrics around something as woolly as building an ecosystem that will improve bioscience in the UK. Um, so, at some stage, and, and they're actually going through a process now about two, two and a half years into the development of that Stevenage Bioscience Catalyst of trying to define some more metrics. And that's just happening at the moment and we're following them as they do that. And I think that's going to be really interesting to see and then to see how functional or dysfunctional those metrics actually become as you try to measure the performance. But going back to your earlier point about insurance, actually, that, it, it, even the insurance company, to some extent... Um, become part of the collaboration in that Outward Bound Trust had just completed a, a, a process of renegotiating some things with the insurance company um, and they were very happy with them. They'd always worked very well with them and the insurance company were convinced that this was just a natural extension of their normal operating activities and should fall under their normal insurance. <laughs> and they did have the, um, the help of two of, sort of the best high ropes danger experts in the world. So that seemed to convince them. Yes. Oh, sorry. I can certainly probably shout in an audience this size, but it's easier on the voice, isn't it? Um, uh, Malcolm Back, as I run my own management consultancy company, and I'm also involved with the ICAEW. Um, one of the things you didn't mention so much in there, although it came into one of your slides on the first collaboration, was the aims of the individual parties and how they tie in. And, and they're not always going to be the same as the final result for the collaboration as a whole. So, for instance, you, you mentioned the final result of raising two and a half million pounds, which was clearly the aim of the collaboration, which was clearly the aim of the charitable trust. Yeah. It wasn't Irvin Seller's aim. Irvin no. Seller's aim was publicity. Yeah. I'm sure it was. Nothing yes. else and simply that. <laughs> And that also seems to be true with the other ones you're looking at. I mean, a bioscience park is a nice idle de deal for the country as a whole, mm. but it's not what GSK are looking for at the end of the day. It's more profits for their shareholders, probably. Um, how are, you, uh, are you looking at what motivates the individual parties as well as the collaboration as a whole? Because it seems to me you can't get to working out whether or not they're achieving what they want without doing that. 
Yes, no, that's you're absolutely right. And we, we are very interested in that. And I think um, one of the things, looking, taking the example of the bioscience, one of the things that is quite interesting in the comparison, and, and, and we're looking at these as comparative cases as well, is the comparison between GSK and, and Man Group in terms of their investment and their ability to effect... Because we're talking about value creation and value capture, aren't we? You, you invest in an ecosystem that grows lots of things but you need some guarantee that you're going to get a big enough slice of the, the bigger pie, effectively. And I think for GSK, remembering it was a collaboration where a third of the investment was from Wellcome and a third from government, but they're one of a very small number of very significant players in biopharma in this country. So if the pie grows, they're very likely to get a good slice of it. So in a sense, they can take a bigger risk over a longer period of time around not having tight controls for their own payback. With Man Group, it's a slightly more challenging prospect because they are one of many, many organisations in the city doing this kind of, or in the world doing the kinds of things that they do. So they have to be a lot more careful about, you know, it's all very well getting all these academics to collaborate and do great quantitative research, but how do we make sure we see the benefit to our organisation? And that's been a constant challenge for man group and, it, and it's something we're talking to them about it's actually how do they measure and make sure they get enough value back and there are some things that they've seen you know, where they can trace projects directly into them that they can see it's working for them but you're, you're absolutely right how do, we, how do we follow the thread is really important and in this one yes but, um, some of the things are murky will anyone ever tell you that they're only interested in the publicity and they're not interested in helping charity probably not um, it, it would even be it's a very difficult question to ask someone in an interview <laughs> I think the different objectives of different parties are clearly crucial but we did have an example in the Shah case of two parties that had very similar objectives the, the, the two charities who were going to get some of the money but had absolutely chalk and cheese cultures I mean, imagine Outward Bound, a low hierarchical, cooperative, educational, developmental for younger kids, and the Royal Marines. <laughs> and getting those two organisations, and indeed the Royal Marines were very happy to supervise other Royal Marines abseiling. That's what they do. <laughs> They were very wary of supervising untrained kids or partly trained kids, going down a rather large building. And, in fact, a lot of that responsibility ended up with Outward Bound mm. because they knew how to do that better than the Royal Marines, although undoubtedly the Royal Marines knew an awful lot about abseiling from great height. So it's the, the cultures of the cooperating organisations. And if I can come back to Richard's point, there is an interesting comparison with ongoing and one-off organisations. Um, the ongoing organisation, I think, has an advantage in it's got history. And you know what's happened in the past, perhaps you will trust people more, you'll take what they said. Well, they delivered in the past, didn't they? So they'll probably deliver this time. In the temporary organisation, that was very unclear and it all had to be negotiated and open. I think it, they are contrasts, but also you learn things from one that might carry over to the other. In the final 
different ways. Um, name's Philip Smith. Um, I sort of specialise in turnarounds. Um, the, the, the one thing you didn't sort of mention is the sort of role of leadership in this, which I would have thought, particularly in the Shard, that it's a sort of quite a, almost a sort of leadership issue, that who's driving the thing forward um, and sort of interrelated to, to the rewards. I mean, you seem to me to be discussing how it plays out rather than the driving and motivating force to get it going. And so is this an issue of a single leader, are the multi-leaderships, and uh, how are they relating together? And that doesn't seem to have come out, and I'd have thought it was quite central to, 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 the, to the point. Yeah, no, you're right. The leadership issue is important, and I think... The, the, again, the interesting thing is, is that with, there was no really strong overarching hierarchical kind of control, and in that sense there was no one leader of the project. So you had a certain amount of leadership from within, um, well, the, the prince's actual private secretary took the role of sort of the leader of the whole project, um, but in a very light-touch way, mainly around bringing people together to make sure everyone had agreed to do the bits they did. And then everyone went away and almost separately did what they had to do. There was very little sense of a strength of leadership in a cohesive way around about actually getting the project through from start to completion. Each people led each person led their own bit. Sorry. That doesn't really come out with the, with the postponed situation that you had, where you're saying one element was saying postpone, and there was obviously some strong reaction to overcome that, which sounds like leadership to me. I mean, yeah. it, it, you know, there seems to be somewhere along the line in there, there's some overarching drive to overcome issues to make yes. sure the thing happens, rather than just relying on everybody being sufficiently motivated that it all comes together organically. Yeah, no, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. I suppose we've sort of, we've taken that, not, not, we haven't used language of leadership, but we've, we've looked at it, as you say, from the perspective of, as I said, the CEO of the organisation that is going to benefit, effectively taking, in that sense, a leadership role in trying to bring a project back on track. I wouldn't say he was then somehow enabled as a leader of the whole project, because, of course, everyone had their own separate things they were trying to achieve, and there was only so much authority that each sort of quasi-leader has over the other people in the collaboration. Does that, does that make sense? We'll talk about it at lunch. <laughs> yeah. um, I may be misunderstanding um, the nature of the, the second lot of collaborations you've got, but it seems to me that... Um, if I understand it correctly, that what we're talking about are organisations that are set up to build collaborations over projects which, similarly to the, the charity one, are, are ones which have a definite life. Because it's at the early stage, it's, it's, it's incubating, getting things going. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in... I mean, much of the work in, the, in, in, in management control, management accounting, is looking at existing organisations that go on. You know, they're, they're, they're continuing. Whereas if you're looking at particular projects, it seems to me that issues, like David said, about different cultures, things like this, you can stand it for a certain amount of time, possibly. Yes. But then there will become a time when things have to become routinised. And... 
uh, and, and embedded. And then that's when, when things change. It's when things like the leadership, um, you know, certain people can lead change, others are better at routine. Um, and I'm interested in how, whether you're going to actually look at these points of disconnect between um, projects that are setting up and the accountabilities and how those accountabilities move through. That may be asking too much, but um, of course... It's, it's asking a lot, <laughs> but um, yes. But I, mean, I, th- I think that's, that's one of the things that the work that you're doing might, might make a very big contribution. Brilliant. In which case, I'll pick your brains on that specific detail later on. I think the, just touching on that thing of the, the second um, case there, the, the Stevenage Bioscience Catalyst, at the moment our interest is focused on the, the central organisation, the Bioscience Catalyst itself, as an ongoing entity, and looking at the role it plays in fostering these collaborations, whether they are temporary or otherwise. So, the, in a sense, the, the pilot study was to try and get some ideas about how those kinds of collaborations might work, and then say, well, in that case, if we're trying to make those things happen, what does that overarching alliance have to do to, to make these things happen? Does that make sense? Thank you. Yes, sir. Good morning, Simon Priest, um, Child Certified Accountant. Um, looking at collaboration, where you've got a variety of stakeholders, um, is a question mark of trying to maintain the individual stakeholders' buy-ins in order that, for you to obtain what you want from them. Initially, they start off with the premise that they're going to deliver, but then they find, because of constraints, they can't. So I was wondering about, under these circumstances, to what extent did the individuals actually keep their promises and deliver exactly what they had set out to offer in the first place? That's point one. Second point, in terms of the Royal Marines situation, I'm sure there are other factors behind that. Mm. For example, Royal Marines pay public money, therefore come under complete constraint to a charity where there are rules and regulations within the MOD as to what can be provided and what cannot be provided to charity under what's known as the wider market scheme, under, under repayment policies. And on the other hand, of course, in terms of security of HRH himself, counter-terrorism would have been naturally involved, all these things which you would not be privy of, of which I have no specific information on. So, but there again, these things have to be taken into account. Thank you. No, it's interesting, the Royal Marines operationally were critical to the actual abseil itself so on, on the actual event their management of the logistics was, um, was really quite central to the success of the whole process but of course within the Royal Marines you have these various different groups and in particular there's a mountain leader training group located in North Wales and it was the question of how, where through the route did the message and either not get there or not either not get there about what they were doing or not get back that they weren't going to do it. Um, so the Royal Marines had a really significant role and actually benefited significantly from the event as well. So, yeah, thank you. Any other? One more minute before you're on here. Uh, Carl Allen. So, Carl Allen. 
Would it be the case that in some situations, what would happen when the parties first meet, or maybe at the second location, is that a leader will emerge and be accepted by the others, and the others, other parties then become managers per se? I think that the um, I think that the, the CEO of the Outward Bound Trust would very much have liked that to have been the case, because it would have been a lot easier to um, essentially have one person leading and managing everyone and, and coordinating. Um, in, in this case, I think possibly because, in a sense, the stakes were very high for all the stakeholders. And so they each needed to retain quite a strong sense of autonomy around their, about their own objectives, their own risks, their own ways of managing and, and working. Um, so they would cede a small amount of that in that collaborative negotiating space. But then they had to make sure that you know, whatever they'd agreed to, they could get fitted back into their organisation. So therefore, you, you couldn't have really strong leadership in that central group such that it started to really shape the direction of everybody because then what would happen, that iterative process would start to break down because people, if they're led by this central leader to these agreements, they're going to struggle to replace it. I I didn't mean a leader in the sense that he would take control, merely that the others would say, okay, you have like a personal interest and you have the ability Mm. So we are making you the leader per se, but we may always remove you per se. And they become managers yeah. only in the sense that they manage their interests. Managing the interests as they translate into their own firms. Yeah, um, I have to think about that one. We'll talk, to, talk about it later. Thank you. <laughs> Any... Probably one, uh, one more. One, uh, can't, can't not have the need for some sort of minimal structures. Yeah. And you sort of see that coming in, in your, your example. But one of the things which I think is relevant to the conversation is the shifting leadership. Mm. And different people lead at different times, but that's within certain structures um, which provide the space within which the, the, the individuals can take leadership at particular times, and that will shift. And, and, may, and one of the things you sort of was mentioned tangentially was, was comment David made about trust. And a lot of this literature talks about trust. And it's interesting that you're using accountability in a sense in the way that some of the literature um, uses trust. Um, slightly differently, but I think there are, are connections there. The, the other point I would make, and I think I, I disagree with what David said in a sense about um, the temporary organisation because these are a variety of parties coming together in a temporary organisation. The temporary organisation itself may not have the long-term interest or long-term history that the individual organisations have, but there will be a temporal embeddedness of all the parties and their their individual histories and their individual futures will shape what goes on within that temporary organisation. Although that temporary organisation itself may become d- distanced from the, the temporal embeddedness over time. And so I think you can see that going on in, in what, what you're saying, that the yeah. insurance company had its own interests and its own experiences. There's a lot of temporal embeddedness in, in your, your example of, of the charities, I think. And I think there's much more 
um, long term in that than the temporary organisation itself suggests. Yes. No, thank you for that. I mean, I, the fact that you know, three people are asking questions and making points about leadership, is, that's great because it gives us some ideas about what to look at further and hopefully I can talk to each of you about that. But yes, I mean, interestingly with this event, there is quite an interesting postscript, you know, this idea of temporariness, actually that at the end of the event, Seller Property Group and Irving Seller and his daughter Caroline, who works for him, were so enamoured with the organisation, Caroline joined the Board of Trustees of the Outward Bound Trust, and then the shard was lent to them for a week to run a number of other fundraising events. So the other interesting thing, of course, with temporary organisations is they're not exactly temporary. So, yes. Right. Thank you very much. Um. Okay, so a great, great talk, I think. Uh, also um, interesting how the, the landscape of uh, control is changing as the landscape of London is changing. Um, so uh, we now have um, uh, another individual who is uh, no stranger to Mark. He's uh, participated uh, before. Uh, his research deals with uh, intercompany relationships, with uh, partnerships, with alliances. And, uh, of course, he's, he's become quite a prominent figure in academia and he speaks to practitioner circles. So he's no less than uh, Henry Decker uh, from the University, the VU University, Amsterdam, uh, where he's management uh, uh, control professor. Uh, he's very, very well published. Uh, the academics uh, uh, here will, will know of, uh, of his uh, publications. Um, but every time I speak to him, it's enlightening because he's really very deeply embedded into the empirics of what he does at a research level. So, Henry, the floor is yours. Thank you, Al, for this, uh, this kind introduction. Um, I think when I got the invitation for uh, being a speaker here, which I was very uh, honored about, actually, uh, to have the opportunity to talk about this project, uh, or a number of projects that I'm working on at the moment, um, I, I was having in my mind on talking on something in particular that is working out now. Now, I happen to be here always in January doing a little bit of teaching in the, manage, uh, in the master's course on, uh, on accounting and control, and then I met with Mike Romwich in the hallway, and he said, well, Henry, it would be really great if you could give something broader and bigger and uh, reflecting a bit more on the area. So I thought, oh, this is going to be a lot of work, actually. Uh, to get this done instead of just focusing on one project in particular. So what I thought I would be doing in this, uh, in this presentation is actually focusing on three projects that I'm uh, doing at the moment and giving a bigger overview of sort of the area. So really what's going to be central in this talk about sort of the management of risky relationships is that I think that the literature has for quite a while acknowledged that risk is a central concept in interfirm partnerships. I think one of the questions just raised on the prior presentations was really about this issue. Well, we have a host of com uh, companies and institutions involved here in one project and trying to bring sort of the interests of parties together that do not always align. And I think that's, that's been one of the central notions, I think, in the studies on interfirm relationships that typically interests of firms do not align and when they start partnering together, they do see some common objectives, but it's difficult to make sure that they keep on track on sort of identifying these common objectives that they have. And whenever opportunities may arise where their personal interest may actually be 
bigger than the common objectives that they aspire to, to achieve. So what I'm, what I'm going to reflect about really is sort of giving some overview of how have sort of partnerships been associated with different types of risks uh, in the literature and focusing in particular on empirical studies of what is risk really about, how do firms consider risks to emerge in, in interfirm relationships, and then look at the findings of three recent studies I've been involved with and where we, in the first study, really tried to do a similar approach as Chris and David have been doing in trying to use some bottom-up approach of what do managers or alliance officers in interfirm relationships consider to be the critical risks that they perceive. It's a relatively theory-free approach in that sense, and that we move into these organizations knowing that there's a lot of literature and theory out there, uh, but actually trying to see do the thoughts and the concerns of managers in these interfirm relationships actually converge with what we academics see to be critical risks in the interfirm space. And then also, do we actually, with the frameworks that we tend to use in the analysis of management controls of interfirm relationships, are we actually on the spot with translating basically what we've been doing, I think, for the last few decades, intra-firm types of frameworks of what our controls about to the inter-firm setting, or do they actually identify controls that we seem to be sort of missing out in our frameworks of analysis, and do we maybe have to adjust our thinking in terms of what is control about in the inter-firm space? Uh, so that's, that's going to be sort of the first study uh, to be reflected upon, and that's, that's basically a study of U.S. organizations that are deeply embedded in alliance activities that I'll tell, uh, tell more about a little bit later. So the second thought that I want to bring in in this presentation is that typically firms need to be making trade-offs in the design of their controls, and controls are, of course, costly. They're not for free. And what we tend to see in studies is that there's this idea that when there's greater amounts of risks to be managed, and I'll, I'll discuss those risks a little bit later, uh, is that there's an indication of a preference for greater degrees of control. When you go into organizations, sometimes you don't actually see that high-risk partnerships are associated with a high intensity of the controls that they're using. So there seems to be some discrepancy between what may be the expectation of the level of control that firms are using given the risks that they're facing, actually. And what we academics, I think, have been, uh, have been talking about is that this is typically a form of control incompleteness. We're using incomplete controls. And some prediction models would basically say that the greater degree of incompleteness, the more likely failure will be within these constellations, the more likely there will be misalignment of the objectives of the organizations. Um, we don't have the right kind of incentive systems. We may not have the right kind of performance metrics to evaluate each other's performance on. And as a consequence, we would be predicting that there will be a greater degree of failure. So one of the thoughts in that study that I'd like to discuss is actually that there may be a deliberate trade-off in there between, well, given that we may face a high level of risk, still it may be optimal for some organizations not to be engaged in a high degree of control. And that is sort of balancing sort of what are the costs and the benefits of the controls that firms are facing and to what extent would actually failure be preferred over a very high level of costly controls in that sense. Now, I guess what we've, uh, what we've been seeing um, in, in, sort of in, in practice in the landscape of interfirm partnerships is that more and more organizations are not collaborating with firms within their own sort of country or within their own setting. Uh, but more and more partnerships are actually expanding over sort of the, the, the boundaries of the country that the firm is located in. And we know very little, I think, about 
uh, international international collaboration between organizations. And I have to think about, I think, a book of uh, actually Al that was that you added it in 2003 where there's a chapter of Shannon Anderson and Karen Sedatol, and they present sort of data on the emergence of partnerships for American organizations. And they have this beautiful graph that sort of shows the media exposure of partnerships by U.S. large corporations. And they show that up to the 1990s, there's really not that much going on in terms of press coverage of the amount of partnerships being announced. And then all of a sudden, there's a steep increase in terms of the numbers of strategic alliances. And what they actually identify is that a lot of these later increases in the numbers of announced alliances between organizations are actually not anymore within the country of the organizations. They're actually overseas collaborations. Now, most of the studies we've seen, I think, are typically within organizations within their own countries. Um, and this study is trying to explicitly look at sort of contrast between, well, what are the differences or the incremental differences in control choices of organizations of uh, firms that are actually outsourcing overseas? And specifically, we're looking at Japanese organizations that I think are renowned for sort of collaborating with Japanese organizations within their supply chains, for instance, uh, and contrasting them with Japanese organizations, luckily in my country, the Netherlands, where there's quite some, quite some activity going on by Japanese firms, and how they collaborate with Dutch organizations, and how do cultural and institutional differences actually make an impact on the choices that they make. And we're focusing on the contracts that they write with each other as some sort of a window of the controls that they use. So uh, somebody once told me that a, a successful presentation always has some graphs in there, so I think I should be bringing in some graphs quickly to show you some trends and, and, and some sort of what is going on in practice before we move into sort of the, the, the analysis of the concepts in there. Uh, so so just, just thinking about sort of what are interfirm relationships and how common are they. Uh, I, I flew here with um, KLM, which I think is a constellation of KLM Air France, and just to sort of make the point that that's not an interfirm partnership that we're focusing on and the purpose for today, it's really they need to be independent organizations, legally and uh, uh, organizationally independent organizations that are work together. So it could be alliances, joint ventures, outsourcing relationships, uh, and even bigger, bigger networks as in the prior paper, where we have sort of voluntary agreements between organizations. In essence, it, it may be not as voluntary when market conditions sort of force organizations to collaborate together. I guess many airlines these days would not do so well if they would voluntarily choose not to be in one of the three big uh, constellations of airline uh, collaborations. Uh, but, but in principle, it's a choice for organizations to join the strategic alliance or strategic partnership. Uh, typically, it's about sort of exchanging or sharing or co-developing something that relates to products or technologies or services of these organizations. Uh, and we've also seen in the literature, I think, that there's enormous amounts of motives that can be distinguished from each other in forms that they can also choose to organize these relationships in, from very fluid and flexible forms, as in the prior presentation, to very tightly developed joint ventures, for instance, that, that are nailed down in a contract with equity sharing uh, and a separate organizational structure. I think the, uh, the Anderson and Sedadol chapter in that graph also shows a very nice trend is that more and more organizations are not only collaborating internationally, but also that they're more and more becoming horizontally tied to each other, which means collaboration between competition instead of, per se, collaboration vertically in the supply chain of the organization. 
And I think one of the thought behind sort of this, this, this notion that firms are collaborating is that they, it allows them to realize goals that they cannot achieve on their own, or at least not in time. They would be too slow, basically, in developing what they would be needing to develop to stay competitive. So there's some arguments in there, and maybe later in this afternoon when there's a panel discussion on sort of uh, what is the impact for strategies of organizations. It's relevant to bring back on these points, but uh, typically reasons for firms to collaborate would be to share assets with each other or complementary assets because it enables them to reduce cost or to share risk with each other, getting access to new markets, new customers, or new technologies that they don't have on their own. So in that sense, it, it allows firms to actually compete in a way that they wouldn't be do, able to do with their own assets or their own uh, sort of resources of the organization. So uh, here are the graphs. Uh, just some data in terms of a publication by uh, Rong Ding, myself, and Tom Groot in terms of Dutch firms and the level of collaboration that we see of Dutch organizations with strategic partners. Uh, so it's data that we collected through a Dutch organization of financial controllers. And these are about 440 organizations that participated. And we asked them to indicate to what extent are you engaged in strategic collaboration, collaboration that has some impact on the revenue potential or the cost potential of the organization in a substantial way. Uh, so those were pre preconditions to, uh, to participate. And 80% of the organizations that participated said that they have at least one of the strategic partnerships for the organization. And I think, on average, they had a couple of fundamentally important uh, alliances for the organization. And I think what the graph is showing is that, in particular, outsourcing is one of the most common forms. Uh, luckily, some of the, the, the elements I'm going to talk about later relate to strategic outsourcing by organizations. And that also joint ventures is being mentioned. At least one-third of the sample is engaged in at least one joint venture. And then you see all kinds of other collaborations in terms of insourcing by organizations of other ones' activities, uh, joint marketing and promotion, joint production, joint R&D, joint purchasing. And then also on the technology side in terms of licensing, for instance, of technology by organizations or sharing knowledge and generally collaboration in the supply chain. Now, I know there's going to be one talk this afternoon as well about the role of the CFO in strategic partnerships. Um, and, and we collected a little bit of data on that as well in terms of well, what's actually the, the relevance for basically us as financial managers or controllers in these interfirm relationships. And they had to pick just the one that they're most engaged in, that if the organization has a strategic partnership, well, what would be the one, or they have multiple, what would be the one that you yourself are most engaged in as a controller or financial manager of this organization? And on average, you see that outsourcing and joint ventures, which may not be that, that surprising, are the ones that they're most deeply embedded in. Uh, they may also be the ones where the boundaries for uh, their, their activities, their jobs, may be most explicit in terms of set about setting up targets or performance metrics for achievements on outsourcing, cost reduction, quality improvements, functionality that must be delivered, or financial statements for joint ventures, for instance, that must be delivered. What's also interesting is that when we ask them to sort of tell something about their involvement in these relationships, to what extent are you involved? And they had to just pick a five-point scale in terms of, well, I just see the yearly reporting in my function up to the point of I'm daily involved as a manager uh, in the activities, that most of the activities actually on the right side of the scale, 
giving some idea that financial managers are quite intensively involved in the management of these relationships, and most of them sort of are in an advisory role or the supervisory role for this strategic partnership up to the point of being daily involved. And then we also see that an increase in this role actually correlates with the extent of information that they develop for the partnership, moving from just when I see the yearly reporting where we have some annual financial data at the aggregated level, cost and revenues, up to more disaggregated financial information, non-financial performance metrics that are being developed, up to creating some sort of in a, in a, in a daily involvement role, planning for targets of the interfirm relationship, and even sharing with the business partner in an open book way the information that they produce to monitor uh, progress. So I, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that there seems to be a, a substantial role for financial managers in sort of the activities of interfirm alliances. And what the literature has done up to now is really point is into sort of the management of concerns or the management of risks or misalignments of the behaviors and the interests of these organizations that are developed this information for. Uh, and if you sort of read academic papers in this sense that try to measure what is the success rate of interfirm collaboration that firms are, uh, firms are engaged in, it's pretty negative. Uh, and there's some sort of common numbers that are keeping coming back over time in terms of the, the majority of strategic alliances is set to fail or at least not deliver what some of the parties are deliver, uh, expecting out of it. Uh, and we see papers reflecting on this across various forms of collaboration like joint ventures or st uh, strategic alliances or strategic outsourcing settings. Um, and that sort of points out that the risks that parties are facing are per pervasive. They're difficult to manage. And it seems to be that it remains difficult to manage if the uh, failure rates keep on being so, uh, so high. I think there's this paper by Kepler, Norton, and Ruggelschen uh, in the Harvard Business Review a couple of years ago that sort of tossed strategic outsourcing relationships as what they say a 50-50 bet for the organization. But one of the points that they're trying to make is that if we get the accounting and control properly aligned with the risks that firms are facing, we may actually change the bet in the benefit of the organizations that are participating in there. So I put a nice, uh, nice, uh, nice picture up there, I think, of a heart that is broken. Uh, maybe some of you are aware that uh, Volkswagen and Suzuki, a couple of years ago, end of 2009, engaged in a strategic partnership with each other, where basically the idea was for Volkswagen to get access to Suzuki's position in the Indian market, where it expected to uh, a lot of growth and to do well, and at the same time for Suzuki to actually get access to technology from Volkswagen for small car production. Um, now, very shortly, I think, after they actually announced the alliance, there was some significant trouble. Uh, and up to this point today, the trouble has not been resolved yet, and they're at this moment still in fight at the International Court of Arbitration in London and trying to get rid of each other. Now, the point is that Volkswagen has taken a 99% stake in Suzuki, which means that Suzuki at this moment is very tied to sort of the, uh, the activities by Volkswagen, and is not maybe as interesting as it could be as a business partner for other organizations, as long as Volkswagen is a major owner of the organization. Um, so so the, the court battle really is about sort of we want to get our shares back, and we want this major shareholder to uh, step back 
from the organization. Now, the interesting thing is what, what, what really sort of the struggle was where it went wrong is that closely after they signed the contract that there was an expectation by Volkswagen that some of the sourcing by Suzuki of diesel engines would actually be from Volkswagen, while for Suzuki that would require quite some adjustments to its automobiles to put Volkswagen diesel engines in the car. So they kept on sourcing from Fiat. Now, Volkswagen saw that as a breach of the contract, as an act of sort of uh, improper conduct by Suzuki. And at the same time, Volkswagen has actually published its annual report where it said that Suzuki was an affiliate of the organization over which they had substantial power in affecting operating and, and financial decisions, which, of course, I think Suzuki was not very pleased with as an organization. Uh, because the contract, when they signed it, was on an equal basis. And they said, well, we're equal partners in here, even though it's very clear that Volkswagen is a much bigger organization than Suzuki is. Uh, we're going to collaborate in the best interest. So Volkswagen saw an act which for Suzuki was reasonable as a breach of the contract. And at the same time, I think Suzuki saw an act of Volkswagen as what Volkswagen thought was reasonable, given their equity stake in the organization, as very unreasonable. And since then, they've been throwing in the media acquisitions to each other in terms of well, that Volkswagen still hasn't delivered any useful technology to Suzuki, for instance. Now, I think this, this sort of indicates the difficulty of setting up collaboration, even if it starts out in the best intentions in the beginning for both organizations, and very clearly they've seen sort of a path forward where they would benefit from each other's resources. Uh, if you would contrast it, I think, with Nissan and Renault as another alliance in the automotive industry that has been highly successful between also two culturally very different organizations, there's a very big difference in terms of what both sets of alliances get out, out there. And then if you take one step back in terms of, well, what does... What does the literature have to tell about us, or how would the literature think about uh, why we can explain such failures or actually the contracts that they might have written in the first place, then you see that most, most of the studies are sort of an, have an economic basis in terms of trying to reason why the risks that these parties are facing follow from the conditions that they're engaging in. In terms of Volkswagen and Suzuki, it's, uh, it, um, you would say, well, what is actually the specificity of the technology that they're agreeing to collaborate on? What is actually the uncertainty that these organizations are facing? And in comparison to the prior presentation, how long do they actually expect to be transacting with each other? And the general prediction would be that for having any degree of success, that organizations have to efficiently align sort of the structures and the agreements of what they discuss with each other, with the conditions that they're facing. So with the specificity, for instance, of what they're transacting upon. So some general governance solutions, I think, that have been studied is sort of what is the structural firm form that firms have been chosen? Well, in the Suzuki Volkswagen uh, example, I think they've chosen for a strategic contract, but also with equity participation. So they've done a mutual equity stake. Given the size of Suzuki, you can imagine that the stake in Volkswagen is not as big as Volkswagen stake is in Suzuki. Uh, and one of the ideas behind this equity stake is that through that, we actually align the incentives of both parties to act in each other's interests, because we now become dependent on the wealth that both of the organizations are generating. 
Well, clearly, it can also be, in this case, something that actually ties organizations into something they don't want anymore. So it makes it difficult for them to actually dissolve the alliance once they've uh, engaged into it. So I think this, there's been quite some predictions being tested in empirical studies that are about that when the level of risk is increasing, as sort of seen by the conditions that transacting firms are facing together, that there's predictions that we have more tightly controlled forms of governance in terms of equity participation, for instance, and setting up tight contracts with each other. There's also been some subset of the literature that's looked at sort of, well, what's actually the partner choice that precedes all these design choices in the first place, and that with greater levels of risk that parties are engaging much more in selection, intense selection of identifying alternative parties, trying to develop metrics or selection criteria that are desirable in a particular party that we're choosing, and then also that we're sort of creating different types of contracts that we are negotiating with each other. And the higher the level of risk, the tighter the contract will be on sort of enforcement mechanisms and coordination mechanisms to collaborate with each other. And then whenever conditions change and risk levels change, that we would be expecting some level of renegotiation to realign. And if the realignment would stay out, the prediction would be, well, there's going to be a higher likelihood of failure. I think in, in the accounting studies in particular, the focus has been on sort of the management control mechanisms that we use to really facilitate collaboration between parties uh, with a focus on results and output controls and behavior controls and to incentive what are the boundaries for performance levels that are being expected by parties, how are we going to incentivize each other within the collaboration, what are the behaviors that we expect to be desirable versus not desirable Thinking again back about this study of, uh, or, or this, this example of Volkswagen and Suzuki, there may have been some sort of limitations in that sense in terms of setting out what are the ex expectations for both parties that we have in terms of behaviors and what are the sourcing decisions that we should have agreed upon in the contract, but clearly they have not done that, uh, creating different expectations. And I think that's the, there was a prior, on the prior presentation also this question about the role of trust in these relationships where the literature sees some interaction between the trust that is being developed between parties over time and the control choices that they make, and how sometimes trust can actually substitute for having a tight contract or having tight controls over the behavior of another, or that it, in other cases can also complement, actually, the development of more effective controls to stimulate cooperation and coordination with each other. Uh, one, uh, one, one recent study also interestingly finds that whenever trust increases, it may actually be an impedance for firms to increase the level of risk in their relationship. So they may actually not reduce on the level of controls that they use. They may actually be willing to engage in more risky behavior with each other without increasing the controls to a similar level. So uh, I, I think the most commonly used view on risk management in alliances is sort of discriminated between two fundamentally different types of risks. I think one relates directly to a question that was, uh, was raised earlier in terms of, well, are the objectives of the different parties involved in this constellation to the center shot really aligned with each other? And they may have a common objective, but do the personal preferences of these organizations also align properly, uh, which I think it is tossed in the literature, sort of the notion of relational risk, that we may be exposed to the behavior of another and... There may be some issues about potential opportunism in there, that even if we agree to act in the best interest of the organization, there may be conditions there 
that we are actually going to deviate from the expectation because it's in our favor, in our benefit. And this is also sort of increasing with these conditions again that whenever firms are investing in more specific assets that would be very difficult to take out of the relationship again. So if Volkswagen and Suzuki are investing in very specific technology for small car production and they make the investments in production technology and the platforms associated with the technology, it's very hard for them to pull out of it again. Well, they've never actually come to that point because they haven't done anything within the alliance. But the expectation would have been that it would actually be investing in high levels of specific assets, which means that the foresight in the contracts and the controls to be used should have been aligned, according to this theory, with, well, there's going to be a high level of relational risk in here. And we must make sure that with these two culturally different partners, that they really understand from each other what the expectations are and what the conduct is that both parties find normal. And I guess for Volkswagen, it's very normal to call Suzuki an affiliate in their annual report because they have strategic power over operating and financial decisions, but it was not considered to be normal for Suzuki. So there may have been some misinterpretations in there in that, uh, in that uh, case. I guess the second type of risk that is being distinguished has to do with that not always do we have to be concerned about only misaligned uh, incentives or objectives between parties, but actually thinking about sort of, well, why do we engage in strategic alliance in the first place is to create value with each other and have a common objective, but how do we properly manage the achievement of that value and how do we actually coordinate successfully with each other to manage uh, the partnership between parties and that is sort of said to be common between sort of activities within organizations and common between activities between organizations, although it may be exactly the reason why firms collaborate is to reduce the level of performance risk. And I guess if you think about sort of constellations of financial institutions that engage in a big loan, is that we coordinate with each other to reduce the level of performance risk that in case there would be a default on payment, that there's not just going to be one party that suffers a big loss, but actually we spread the risk over uh, the different parties in there. So we use actually alliances to reduce the level of performance risk in that sense. But the idea is that we, we, we do need to think about sort of what kind of controls would be proper in place to align both kinds of risks uh, between the organizations that are collaborating. So uh, just, to, just to a brief overview of sort of what are then the models that are typically being examined in the literature and what are the purposes that we see there for management controls is that basically some of the, most of the studies that build on transaction cost economics say, well, alliance managers really have to recognize the conditions that the transaction is facing in terms of, for instance, what is the specificity of the assets that parties are investing in with each other and how difficult would it be once we've invested in those assets together to pull them back again to the organization or if we co-develop some knowledge in strategic outsourcing of information technology, how difficult would it be to actually get out of the relationship again once we are along the way a couple of years further? Now, the problems get more difficult when there's a high level of uncertainty that we have difficulty specifying sort of contracts, agreements, uh, in particular when there's a lot of frequency of interactions between these parties. So what really these studies are doing is sort of saying, well, we expect that uh, managers are you know, having the foresight in terms of recognizing from transaction conditions what the control requirements would be. And then once we set in place the right kind of controls in terms of performance measurement systems, for instance, or specifications of decision rights and allocation of accountability 
between parties, that it helps us to sort of increase the alignment of incentives between parties, that it helps to increase the transparency of behaviors and outcomes that we're producing together and to communicate better with each other. So there's sort of a facilitating role in there of, of management controls to, on the one hand, safeguard against opportunistic behaviors and, on the other hand, sort of help coordinating across organizational boundaries. Just going to skip this one for the sake of time. So given this sort of general theoretical background, uh, well, what, are, what are studies really trying to do in terms of making these connections between what are the different types of risks that firms are facing in strategic alliances and what are their options for controls is that we sort of moved in with, uh, with Shannon Anderson, Margaret Christ, and Karen Sedatol in thinking about, well, is this actually the world that managers also see that way? So is the world that academic studies talk about strategic partnerships and alliances from a theoretical point of view consistent with the world that managers are seeing as what other risks that they face in strategic alliances and what other controls that they actually employ to mitigate risk? So our, we try to use a bottom-up approach in this study where we basically move in the organizations very similar in a theory-free sense and trying to ask very general questions about what are the issues that you're concerned about, what are the choices that you make to deal with these concerns that you're facing. So we went to three large American organizations uh, which we cannot identify by name for uh, contractual reasons but they're, they're highly involved in alliance activities with each other and across all stages of the value chain. So first firm is Biotech, which is an international R&D company that does sales production and is, is sort of combining biological, chemical, and manufacturing expertise. And this organization works nationally and internationally with various kinds of strategic partners in alliances and joint ventures and trying to sort of co-develop products, co-brand products, marketing jointly with other products and, and sort of alliances in the supply chain there. Uh, then we have an IT organization, technology, that also sort of is much involved with strategic partners in technology development, uh, sales and, uh, and production, and also a fairly high degree of sort of licensing of technology of the organization to strategic partners around the world. And the last one we call retail, which is mostly located in the U.S. doing sales within the United States uh, of products through stores, catalogs, and the Internet. And in particular here, co-branding, co-promotion, and distribution alliances are very significant. So what we've been doing is moving into these organizations, talking to a whole range of people that we call alliance officers. There's the people that are, to some degree, to a, up to a very intensive degree, involved in these different types of alliances of these organizations, trying to identify what are the risks that you are concerned about in working with these parties, and what are the types of choices that the organization makes to make sure that these alliance activities are sort of facilitated properly. At the same time, what we've been doing with this study is setting out a survey to a sample of chief executive auditors in the U.S., so it's not consecutive, but actually simultaneously with the case study, that we went through the practitioner literature, actually, and the academic literature on what are the specific types of risks that are being recognized in practitioner terms, basically, and also what are the specific types of controls that are being recognized, and trying to do, again, this bottom-up approach of, well, can we actually see common patterns 
of behaving when particular kinds of risks are emerging, what are the types of control choices that we see by these organizations. So it's, uh, it's, it's a big inventory in that sense of risk types and control types that we're trying to measure across these organizations and seeing how they respond in their risk control relationship. So I think first, I think uh, this doesn't tank framework of relational risks and performance risks seem to work out quite nicely when we try to see practitioner language in this survey study in particular. And well, how do actually different types of risk combine to a more high aggregate level of what is the nature of these risks that they're facing? So most of the organizations, when we were talking to them and also measuring them, provided some fairly high degrees in terms of being concerned about failures of products or services due to the actions of our business partner. Uh, the risk of actually miscoordination between parties where there may be some flaws in communication or expectations or actions that we're conducting with each other, the risk of insufficient quality for the organization or insufficient innovation. On the other end, relational risks were being recognized, but to a somewhat lesser extent. So it seemed to be that most organizations were mostly focused about sort of uh, performance risks and to a lesser extent the risk that we academics tend to put up front in terms of alignment of interest or, or uh, divergence of objectives. In terms of intellectual property risks, for instance, in the case of what well, we are concerned about that our partner may actually make use of the property that we're developing in unintended ways. And this was something that in, in one of the case firms, uh, technology was particularly prominent of how do we set up the right kind of structures to make sure that licensing partners are not using technology that we develop in unintended ways for the organization. How do we protect our property from misuse by others? Uh, the, the risk of locked-in of the organization with the partner for a longer period of time, just I think like the Suzuki Volkswagen case, that once we step into the alliance, are we actually able to get back again if it turns out to be a failure? And firms were concerned about being locked in over time with their business partner in case of failures that they may face. Uh, in general, some concerns about the misaligned incentives that they were facing, given that these are independent firms with their own profit function and no central authority that may actually make final decisions on them. So how do we make sure that we align the incentives between the organizations um, to act in the best interest of the joint objectives and not the private objectives? But also some issues about, well, is actually the valuation of my contributions to this alliance sufficient? Do I actually get sufficient returns for what I develop in here? And if you think about biotech and technology being organizations that are involved in sort of highly explorative processes for developing new technology with business partners, it's very difficult to define ex ante what actually part the stake should have been in terms of the final outcome. So how do we make proper agreements on making sure that what we contribute to the alliance in terms of intellectual cap, uh, knowledge, for instance, will be valued accordingly? Uh, <clears throat> so these were some samples of risk types that I think were very common, uh, and again, on the left-hand side, performance risk to seem to be a more explicit managerial concern, and that relational risks were of sort of secondary concern to these organizations. So given that we're collaborating, we have to be concerned about this, but the creation of value is really something that is upfront in these organizations of how do, we, how do we get the potential of the alliance working with each other. And it was striking that, in particular, when we talked to people in finance and auditing treasury functions, that they sort of identified a third type of risk that didn't really seem to fit well with these other two categories, 
which was compliance and regulatory risk, and which is, well, how does this alliance actually expose the organization to sanctions or punishment by other parties, by third parties, because our partner may actually not behave according to our rules or regulations or to the laws of the country that we're operating in or to expectations of customers. <coughs> and they were more centralized within particular alliance offices. But again, we found sort of when we set out the survey that this was one of the most prominent types of risk that firms are concerned about. Does, does the alliance not expose the organization too much actually to sanctions and punishments? because the business partner is maybe unintendedly actually not exposing the right kind of conduct. So uh, it's, it's, we, we identified some more than 30 types of specific controls. It will be a little bit too much to discuss them all, but luckily when we analyzed the data from the survey, they actually seem to pull quite nicely in sort of larger groups of consistent sets of controls. Uh, and we link them to risks. So what we, what we find in the survey results is that typically organizations are using not one dominant type of control, but a complementary risk of, risk, uh, mix of controls to manage these risks. And that we find in particular that performance uh, risks that they're facing were resolved through very intensive partner selection processes. So it's really trying to avoid problems to emerge by finding the right kind of partner in the first place and identifying desirable properties in a partner and then also complementing these performance risks, the management with contractual outcome agreements in the, in the contract between the parties, which includes in our case also sort of the use of non-financial reviews to assess the performance being delivered by the, part, uh, by the business partner to the alliance. For RR relational risks, we actually find a pretty, a pretty significant relationship with sort of the use of exit agreements. So how do these organizations we sort of have some, uh, have some experience with setting up alliances with each other. How do they manage relational risk in the first place? seems to be by making provisions in terms of, well, if there's going to be any failure between the organizations, how do we actually split up with each other? So how are we going to reallocate the assets or the intellectual property that we've developed between both parties? How are we going to share costs? What kind of termination agreements do we make in, 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 in case of conflict? And do we find a way to arbitration or court of law in that sense? So they make very clear, explicit provisions up front to make sure that we manage those relational risks properly if they would emerge in terms of divergence of interest. And then during the alliance, we find in particular that the use of asset safeguards in terms of provisions about who owns what, what we develop. So determining what joint development of alliance assets joint development of intellectual property, for instance, is going to be allocated between parties. Uh, where are the decision rights? Where are decision responsibilities for organizations to make sure that we align, again, the interests of both parties? Now, what we find for, uh, in particular, this, this notion of compliance and regulatory risk is that it wasn't associated with any formal type of control, but it was associated particularly with trust-based controls where there seems to be this notion that when we are exposed to that type of risk within the alliance, which is typically uh, present in, in overseas types of alliance where we don't know exactly how the partner may be behaving relative to sort of the, the, the laws of the country that we're engaged in, uh, <clears throat> is that they were building a lot on sort of informal reviews of the operations of the party, maybe some surprise visits to, oper to the operations of the party, and also trust-based controls in terms of, well, do we have the right kind of 
partner in the first place? Can we rely on the best intentions of this organization? But we didn't find any evidence of sort of the use of formal types of controls for managing compliance and regulatory risk. Final uh, financial reviews, which was the sixth category of controls that we identify in this study, they were mostly sort of uh, used in joint venture relationships where there's a clearly defined organizational unit with sort of legal, legal boundaries in there where financial reports could be produced and audited. Uh, but we didn't find any evidence sort of, that they were also related systematically to other types of risks in that sense. So this is sort of a, a study that tries to make a bottom-up approach of how do actually different types of risks relate to the choice of controls. And we sort of concluded that there seems to be a fairly nice overlap between the common frameworks that we've been using in accounting research for studying sort of control choices within organizations and the types that we identified through this bottom-up approach in terms of, for instance, partner selection, which has a clear analogy with employee selection within organizations, setting, setting boundaries on behavior through specifications of safeguards or termination uh, agreements with each other, contractual outcome measures in terms of results and performance measurement systems. Uh, so that's one of the conclusions of this, 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 this study is also that it, it may be doubtful whether we need completely new sort of ways of thinking about what control configurations are or thinking about, well, do actually frameworks that we've commonly used for analysis of controls within organizations are also relevant for controls between organizations in that sense. And we didn't find really through the case interviews uh, that much sort of surprising results of controls that we had never anticipated. Although in the other study that we just saw presented, I think controls related to space and, and structuring maybe maybe a bit more off the common frameworks that we're uh, that I guess we're used to so the, st the second study that I will shortly uh, shortly discuss is a, uh, a study of Belgium outsourcing relationships where we're explicitly focused on the notion of incompleteness and the trade-offs that organizations are making uh, and the whole idea behind that study is that we tend to, as academics, try to explain the controls that we do observe within organizations, within alliances, and we try to find some theoretical expl explanations for, uh, for what we see. Uh, but it may also be that what we actually don't see, for instance, a high-risk situation with very few controls in there, may be just as interesting in seeing sort of what is actually going on there and why do firms make these choices of not putting in elaborate control or contractual structures while risks are high. So what studies typically do is they, that it's, it's mostly quantitative studies that are focused on this question of, well, we try to specify some relation between the choice of controls that we observe, for instance, through a survey study, and then proxies for the risks that we see out there within the relationship. And then we take a regression residual which, if it's negative, means there's not, a, there's not enough controls relative to the risks that firms are facing. Um, and some of the meaning that has been uh, conventionally given, I think, to this notion of incompleteness of these controls, these negative regression residuals, is that they're mistakes by managers. So it's been, the theory is right, and managers have been making mistakes in this empirical setting that we studied in terms of not using enough controls for the risks that they're facing. Uh, other terminology that's been used is sort of that there's some level of misalignment between what the firm should have been doing according to theory versus what, what we empirically actually observe, what they have done. So there's been some studies on looking at what are the effects of incompleteness of controls. I think one very interesting study that also relates a bit to the prior presentation at the end of sort of telecommunications industry uh, is a study by Rochelle Sampson 
who has looked at what are the choices that firms are making for alliances with telecommunication partners uh, in developing new technology. And she talks about sort of innovation alliances having two fundamental choices in terms of do we use a pooling contract where we pool resources and we contractually make agreements with each other on what we expect from each other and want to get out of here, and do we use joint ventures? And her prediction model is that if we use joint ventures in a situation where there's very low levels of risk between the parties, there will be much too much bureaucracy between parties, which will stiffer innovation, uh, and that will sort of lead to lower outcomes. On the other hand, if we have too little control for a high level of risk, so we use a pool and contract where we should have used the joint venture in that sense, we're actually going to have not enough protection of the interest of both parties, and there's going to be a higher likelihood of this misalignment of incentives. Uh, and her findings are actually in line with that prediction that if there's some sort of a mismatch between the type of alliance that they engage in and the type of structure that they choose, a pooling contract versus a joint venture, that there's a higher likelihood of less outcomes. And she looks at patenting success. So firms that make a mismatch between the structure of the organization and the risks that they're facing are having a, a lower likelihood of having patents, being uh, valuable patents being developed over time. So that's one of the findings. One of the studies I've been doing with Shannon Anderson was in the area of information technology outsourcing, and we find something similar in terms of when firms, these are Dutch organizations, that are engaging in the development of, of substantial information technology by a business partner. Um, and the moment we find that there's actually a mismatch between the types of contractual agreements that they write with each other, given the riskiness of the situation, that there's a higher likelihood of not getting the functionality or quality of the products that you had anticipated or cost overruns in development of this information technology. Or there's going to be issues in terms of service and insufficient service delivery after the implementation, for instance, of the information technology. Now, the question is, are these, again, managerial mistakes? Do we find here some evidence that managers have been sort of wrong in the control choices? And does theory give any indication for how choices may have been done differently? Uh, and I guess there's, there's a whole lot of other reasons that you can imagine why firms actually don't write a complete contract with each other or a very elaborate contract with each other even if there's a high level of risk of the, uh, of the relationship that they're facing. And in this study, we look in particular at sort of risk preferences of the organization and the cost of control, which may differ between different parties. And in particular, if we have a high cost function of developing controls relative to other organizations, we're going to choose for less elaborate contracts, even if it exposes the organization to more risk. And then the real question, I guess, is in terms of what is actually the cost of failure versus the cost of developing controls, and how do we balance those properly? So we, uh, we, we look at sort of the use of outcome control specifications in terms of performance targets, incentive systems between the outsourcer and the IT developer, feedback on performance levels, and... Uh, measurement of, of sort of uh, what has been realized relative to the targets that they've, that they've set, and at the same time also structural specifications on behavior in terms of what kind of procedures do we set out there? What do we expect on the behaviors of our outsourcing partner? 
What kind of feedback do we give on this partner? Do we share in costs if our procedures are followed properly? Do we penalize the partner if they're not? So we take this package idea again of different types of controls and how they relate to risks. And what we actually find is again some evidence that if there's any misalignment be between sort of the extent of risk that these organizations are facing as given by sort of these, these box of anti-objective risks, uh, what are the characteristics of this transaction? that within the survey that we set out there is that also these managers give a higher perception of performance risks and relational risks. So on the one hand, we do this exercise where we calculate ourselves this, this measure of misalignment, and we correlate that with a measure of what managers actually think is the extent of uncovered risk in their relationship. And there's a highly uh, or a fairly significant correlation between those two. So that seems to indicate that managers are actually aware of the misalignment of their controls that they use to manage this relationship, and that casts some doubt about where you can say, well, are these complete mistakes on managers' side versus are there any intentional choices that they may have made in trading off risks and costs uh, for this relationship in in terms of how do we set up the, the right level of controls? What we also find, and I think it nicely ties into some of the later discussion um, on the prior presentation, is the moment that we actually have no prior, that we have prior ties in the relationship where there's actually been some familiarity being developed over time between the business partners together, and they engage in repeated transactions, that when we have this objective measure of misalignment, that managers actually seem not to be so concerned about it. The correlation goes much weaker. At the moment, we don't have any prior ties, so it's a first-time first collaboration between business partners. We actually find evidence of a fairly high correlation between sort of this misalignment measure and the perception by managers of the risks that they're facing. So there seems to be some indication that the notion of trust may be substituting, in that sense, for the lack of controls that we don't put in the relationship. What's also striking, I guess, in terms of this study is that when we have a low resource importance to the outsourcers, so there's an outsourcing of technology, but it's not a fundamental nature to sort of the competitive position of the outsourcer, that the concerns that are mostly, uh, that are mostly having when they have misalignment of these controls is these relational risks. So we're in a situation where we may be facing misaligned preferences or incentives of our business partner because we didn't put in place the right kind of performance metrics, for instance, uh, while when we move to the, down the scale in terms of, well, actually, what our outsourcing partner is providing to us is of high relevance or is strategic importance to the organization, that you see actually the concerns of these managers moving to performance risks. And at the moment that we have a misalignment in this contract or the controls that we use, that it is more associated with the perception of that there may be performance failures. At the same time, we see some weakening again of the perception of relational risks in that sense. So one of the conclusions that we're drawing in this case is that we need to understand much better, actually, how managers make these trade-offs between the investments in controls versus the costs that they have to or the expenditure on those controls relative to the risks that they're facing. Um, Because we may have been on the wrong foot in terms of academic studies to some extent in always seeing these measures of misalignment as sort of mistakes in the governance structure that they're creating with each other. And maybe there's some more dimensions we need to incorporate in sort of what is the cost-benefit analysis of controls to organizations. So I see, uh, I see uh, how many? Five more minutes? I, I think I can do that quicker. Uh, the, last study, <laughs> uh, the, the last study I'd like to reflect upon goes back to this notion again that a lot of the collaboration that we see 
these days is actually not between parties anymore from the same cultural context within the boundaries of, a, of the country of one of the business partners, but actually goes across countries. So we have overseas collaborations. And there's not a, there's not a lot of literature or studies that have, to, that have digged into what are the types of, cho of choices that firms are making to manage relationships with overseas parties or with culturally distant and institutionally distant parties. Uh, so this is a study with Takaharu Kawai and Junior Sakaguchi, who you can guess are from Japan. And what we're trying to do is sort of look at Japanese organizations that are sourcing strategically sort of resources within Japan to another business partner. So this can be the sourcing of technology, for instance, or the sourcing of parts or the sourcing of maintenance for machines of the organization, as long as it's of substantial value to the organization. And then we do something similar for Japanese organizations within the Netherlands, where they're facing a completely different institutional cultural context. So one of the, uh, one of the notions, I guess, again, in academic studies, in particular in the strategy area, has been that... For instance, offshoring by organizations can be associated with all kinds of hidden costs, costs that firms didn't take into the equation of, of sort of the outsourcing decision, the make or buy analysis. So we may be facing all kinds of risks that we did not anticipate in terms of, for instance, cost of communication, misperceptions of each other. Think again about the Volkswagen Suzuki alliance where what was normal for each of the organizations was actually normal between these organizations. Um, so there can be all kinds of negative effects basically resolving from these information asymmetries between parties and cultural distance between them uh, that leads to complex communication or coordination difficulties, frictions that they may face, differences in priorities and expectations that they may set. Uh, that also, uh, I guess this literature in this international alliance area has noted this notion that it's more difficult to develop trust between parties from a different cultural context because of these reasons of different expectations and routines that they're, uh, that they're using, uh, which means that we have also some reduced value of our current routines of the organization within our home country setting, maybe, on how we set up alliances with each other and how we're going to work with each other, how we're going to coordinate with each other, and leave sort of less uh, room for deviations. So uh, this is a definition of what we see to be strategic outsourcing. You may have picked up this issue in the news last year that uh, Apple was facing significant difficulties in the introduction of the iPad Mini 2 um, because actually Sharp, uh, one of the suppliers, was facing capacity issues in producing the Retina display that they were, uh, that they were uh, supposed to deliver. And I think uh, LG displays had the same issue as the second supplier to Apple. Uh, in providing sort of these displays, which, uh, which led to some delay of their introduction of the product to the market. So it's strategic housing real, really in our setting has to be something of substantial value to the organization or substantial cost to the organization that they like to uh, collaborate on. And what we basically do in this study is that we say, well, we take three stages of, of design of a relationship. We look at the preparation of the contract and in particular the accounting information that we gather on what is actually desirable levels of performance with this business partner. So it may be cost, quality information, uh, functionality information, technology information about the business partner, all kinds of indicators that help us actually designing contractual agreements. Then in the box in the middle, we look at sort of contracting design choices in terms of the complexity of the contract. Uh, which is operationalized as sort of the enforcement agreements that we make with each other, coordination agreements, 
and also adaptation in case there will be some circumstances that we, uh, that we might foresee happening. Uh, also duration of the contract, how long is the contract, and do we use renewal clauses and how tightly do we use those renewal clauses, and finally how much flexibility do we leave. Now the whole prediction in here is that exchange hazards, these risks that the firms are facing, will increase the level of contractual control over the strategic outsourcing relationship, but then that there's going to be an incremental effect of host country outsourcing relations, so Japanese firms outsourcing in the Netherlands, because they have these incremental risks that are faced that are unique sort of to this overseas setting. So what we find, and we are, we'd like to compare apples with apples, so we do some sort of a match sample of relations that are very similar in terms of the transactions that are conducted in both Japan with Japanese partners and in the Netherlands with Dutch partners. So we, we try to sort of compare really apples with apples to make sure that the incremental host country effects can be interpreted that way. So we find generally that sort of risk and increasing levels of risk lead to more preparation in terms of information collection between parties on how we can design good contracts, greater complexity of the contract in terms of enforcement clauses, coordination clauses, adaptation clauses. They're also setting into longer-term relationships with each other when we're making investments in specific assets that lead to higher levels of risks. So the duration of the contracts increases, and we find that there's also going to be tighter renewal clauses in terms of, well, what do we hold the partner accountable for to be renewed within this relationship? And we can use this as a real option to opt out of it if it fails and to incentivize the partner, uh, partner to perform better. Then we also find that there's some more flexibility within the contract when there's greater uncertainty and complexity, which puts some limitations on, on sort of developing complex contracts uh, and leaves some open spaces. And in the end, it also leads to sort of greater contracting costs, which, which is, again, this trade-off between, well, how complex do we want to make the contract versus how much expenditure do we make on this contract? So this, this trade-off notion again. Well, for these Japanese organizations outsourcing in the Netherlands, we find incremental effects that are partly according to sort of our predictions in terms of that they do have a shorter duration because they may want to have more flexibility to opt out of the relationship if there's going to be any misalignment of behaviors or performance that we didn't anticipate. They use tighter renewal agreements, so they actually set more specific targets and conditions for being renewed as a business partner. Uh, so they, they create some sort of a real option value in that sense. And they also use less flexibility, less open ends in the contract to make sure that we have less ambiguity that we can uh, struggle about. Now, we also find that, in a relative sense, they expend much more money on the contract development, so contracting is more costly within the host country setting than for comparable host country relationships and for comparable contracts. And similarly, they, they expend much more resources, actually, on identifying good partners in the first place, uh, which mostly have to do with sort of the complexity of the contract in that sense. And finally, when Japanese firms are much longer in the Netherlands uh, than their counterparts that are being compared, we find that all the differences seem to weaken. So it seems to be the case that once they start developing knowledge and understanding of the institutional context and working with local business partners, actually the differences seem to disappear, and there's some adaptation going on. My final slide. So, uh, so basically what I've been trying to do through t t discussing this general framework and these three studies is, is making this case that risk is profound in interfirm relationships, but that it also comes in various forms. 
uh, that alliance managers are facing and that they may induce different types of control responses, typically a whole set of different controls that are being associated with different types of risks, that international collaboration has some incremental complexity and risk levels that are associated with different choices that they're making within the contract in our case, but also different design economics. It's more costly to develop controls in that sense in a host country than it would have been for a similar contract in a host country. And that is also, I would say, a very limited understanding that we have up to now as academics in terms of how do managers actually make these trade-offs between the risks that they foresee in their relationships and the control choices that they make, and how do we actually balance um, these, these trade-offs that, uh, that we must make between control choices uh, or, leaving the con or leaving the contract or the controls that we have somewhat incomplete. So thank you for your uh, attention. Not sure if you still allow me some time for uh, for questions or. Why do I need to be a very quick one? So, Henry, thank you very much for this thorough presentation. And before letting you off the hook and, and everybody else off to lunch, uh, I have an important uh, fundamental question to you because I'm. I've been slightly troubled by this concept of risk recently. So you're just the guy to, to, to answer this. That could you sort of argue that all this fuss about risk, you know, the research on risk and the management consultancy on, on risk and the, the talk of risk management in general, it has actually become a kind of new managerial consciousness or ontology, your worldview, a perspective to approach the world of business to the extent that you do, it, it reminds us of Sigmund Freud's texts on, on, on our psychology, that you know, sex is everywhere, so now risk is everywhere. So how does this sort of, in your view, affect business management, and does it have unintended consequences that actually managers being increasingly aware of risks, they sort of forget the basic fundamental truth that, hey, come on, abnormal profits, they come from risk-taking. And, and running the business is about taking action, taking initiative, acting. So do they become sort of risk bureaucrats instead of being managers is my provocative question to you. Well, I, I, I guess I would respond by, by rhetorically saying how, how, how narrow would you define what risk is about. And I think in particular when we look at the first study where we went to these organizations relatively theory-free and let managers speak freely about what their concerns are about within the relationships that they're facing, what are the issues that they're trying to address, is that they come up bottom-up with this notion of, well, these are the things that we try to manage. And actually, abnormal profits, I guess, have more to do with performance risks or actually the value creation potential of an interfirm alliance than they would have to do with how do we actually divide the pie between each other and the risk of misaligned incentives in that sense. So I'm, I'm not so sure if sort of it, it's an issue of relabeling what we tended to uh, usually call, I guess, control problems or something in the past that we need to, need to address with the uh, kind of instrumentarium that we have at hand versus the notion of what is actually the, 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 the level of issues, basically, that these firms are facing in their dealings with a, with a uh, strategic business partner. Uh, so I, I guess that study tries to bring in the notion also that if we call it risk, um, we have to be careful about what risks are really important in the eyes of managers 
And in that sense, we see some discrepancy between what transaction cost economic studies, for instance, have defined as being risk as relating to relational sort of uh, misalignment in that sense versus what these managers indicate to us in terms of not creating the value that they aspire to get out of the relationship in a broader sense. So I, I agree to some extent that it's, it's, it's a matter of labeling and relabeling that, that this literature is engaging in and taking familiar problems in a new terminology, uh, but also maybe a terminology that does, does speak to the minds of managers in how they see, to some extent, the issues that they need to deal with within these relationships. Thank you.